Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 68 with Kate Holacek. Like, yes, a great steak. People will roll their eyes back in their head and be like, oh my God, this is amazing. But you get to watch people with pastry turn into children. And that's my favorite, especially if you give them nostalgic flavors that remind them of their childhood and you just see them like a grown adult just turn into a child and you can just see that in their face, like, oh my God, like it's just so nostalgic. And that's what, you know, I've always attached to pastry and that's why I love doing it. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone. This is Chris Spear, your host of the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. For those of you who are maybe tuning in for the first time, I thought I'd give you a little background into myself and what this is all about. I have a personal chef business called Perfect Little Bites that I started 10 years ago on the side. And as of next week, I will have been doing for four years full time now. So I started to see a lot of my friends get into personal chef businesses, uh, also things like food truck businesses, and I thought I'd start a little community and call it Chefs Without Restaurants. And we could mostly gig share, share resources, opportunities, and just kind of talk about the trials and tribulations of being a small food business owner. So last year, I decided to start a podcast and call it Chefs Without Restaurants. So that's what you're listening to. So on the show... Most of my guests are people working in the food and beverage industry, but not a traditional brick-and-mortar restaurant. So you have a lot of personal chefs, caterers, food truck operators. We've had distillers, cookbook authors. We've had people who do pop-ups. So there's a lot of really interesting things in the food and beverage world. So that's what we want to do, is have those people on this show. But we also want to talk about topics that are pertinent to our industry. So sometimes it does relate into the restaurant business. Today on the show, I have a good friend, Kate Holichick. She is a pastry chef in the Boston, Massachusetts area, and she recently left her job at a restaurant and is now starting her own desserts business called Lionheart Confections. So I want to talk to Kate about starting her own business and, you know, the bakery business in general. And then we kind of dive into the conversation about uh, work environments, specifically toxic work environments, uh, what she's seen, how she has kind of dealt with them, and, you know, kind of how that's been a big part of her culinary story. She definitely advocates for employees' rights and, and workers' rights, and has been someone in the food community, especially in the Boston area, that's been very outspoken, but also helpful. And I think that's great. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. And we definitely talk about the pastry business. Some of the other topics we touch on during this conversation are growing your staff and empowering them, chefs being obsessed with awards, standing up for and speaking up for yourself, and pop-ups. I hope you enjoy this episode. Please go follow Kate on social media. I'll put all the links in the show notes as usual. And as always, thanks so much for listening and have a great week. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. Today, I'm excited to have on the show pastry chef, Kate Holacek. I've known Kate for a number of years now, mostly through our interactions at the Star Chefs Congress up in New York City. After working her way through some of Boston's eclectic kitchens, she recently announced the launch of her own business, Lionheart Confections. I'm excited to hear all about it. So welcome to the show, Kate. Hi, how's it going? It's great. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to uh, hear all about your new endeavors and kind of dive into some of the fun backstory of how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I guess why don't we start a little bit about that? Um, what's your background with cooking? And did you always want to be in sweets, be a pastry chef? Uh, how did you get to where you are? Uh, I mean, it's definitely been a, a weird and interesting road. Uh, I was initially uh, going to be a doctor, um, but uh, after a while, I realized like I'm, I'm a creative at heart that uh, 
you know, I wasn't being fulfilled taking the, you know, intro classes like for pre-med and uh, I eventually start to go the way of like, and that's the other like love of my life is art. So I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty fluent in that. I illustrate, I actually have a degree in illustration, but I pursued that um, full time. So that was fulfilling that creative aspect for it. But during, you know, college, I, I grew up in a working class family. You know, my parents couldn't, you know, write checks for, you know, these expensive tuitions and stuff. So they, uh, you know, told me I need to get a job. So like, since I was 17, I always had a job while I was in college. So I always worked full time while I was, um, you know, taking classes and, uh, it was just restaurants. Restaurants were just so natural for me to go to, um, it, just cause you know, it's like readily available to that age group, you know, 17 to 19 when you start out. And I just, you know, found, my passion in that. Like I, I had the initial, um, like idea that I need to make lots of money. So I, I was doing the whole serving route, uh, bartending, like learning how to bartend, uh, when I was in New Hampshire and, you know, for a while, that's great. But after like, after enough of it, I started to realize I don't like being around people all the time. Uh, as much as I'm super friendly, I'm a very private person. And, uh, you know, it's mentally draining to serve all the time and bartend all the time. I, I don't understand how people do it constantly because it's so exhausting because I'm an empathetic person. So like I, I emote and there are just some days where I just don't want to talk to anybody. So I ended up moving to back a house and working my way through kitchens and, uh, you know, starting on garbage, making salads. And, you know, uh, my first independent restaurant I worked at in Bedford, New Hampshire, you know, we had a whole pastry plating station and I just kind of looked over and like, I was always interested. We do like, you know, creme brulee and like molten chocolate cake and all that goodness. And then we do like a dessert collection, which was like a mini version of all the desserts on the menu. And like, I love that because you got to kind of play it the way you want it. So as garbage, you got to do that. And I always just every night, I would just be like, I want to be a pastry player. I want to be the pastry player tonight. And, um, you know, my team, you know, saw that I was, um, you know, really interested in that. So eventually the pastry team kind of took me on and that uh, took me under their wing and gave me more and more responsibility, portioning cookies, pinching tart shells, and like my pastry mentor, Elaine uh, Spear, she's amazing. Um, you know, I still talk to her actively and I always send her questions still about, you know, stuff we used to make and techniques. But uh, she, she basically kind of taught me the care. And, um, you know, we, we had a pastry department of like, she was the executive pastry chef. And then there was like two pastry chefs underneath her. And then there was me, uh, the little minion. And, you know, the other two pastry chefs are great. I will never, you know, speak bad of them. But Elaine, you could just see the finesse. And like, I always admired that, like the little touches and, you know, the textures and like the techniques she would do. And just like, you know, it wasn't like this hoity toity, like it was a fine dining restaurant, but it didn't, she didn't make it feel untouchable. Cause I feel like a lot with fine dining, a lot of chefs make it feel that way. Like it's precious. And I just don't like that where she just cooked with so much love and care that that just kind of naturally came with it. So, um, you know, that I'm so thankful that I got to work under somebody like that and kind of started the ball rolling on like the passion for me. And then from there, you know, I kind of like had a happenstance, like hirings. Like I remember uh, taking over at a place in Manchester, like a farm, farm to table restaurant, you know, that verbiage. And, um, you know, their pastry chef sucked. And I came in and like, you know, fixed a lot of her recipes and like, it was simple stuff, but, um, you know, and that was my first like executive pastry chef job, AKA I was like the pastry cook, but still like to have that title. I was like 22, which was cool while going to art school. And then I don't know, I, I basically kind of take every job as like, what can I learn from this? Um, it's not necessarily like moving up the ladder in that sense, like looking for the next job title, like pastry chef, executive pastry chef, you know, owning the place, you know, it's, it's not like, that's not how I view it. I don't mind doing like a lateral move knowing that I'm going to learn something or work under somebody to gain more knowledge and like refine my skills. So there seems to be less growth in the pastry world. Like if you go to a restaurant, like how many places in that restaurant can you move to? Like once you get to that level of pastry chef, you're kind of at the top, right? So you can yeah. either have to just stay there or move out. Or, or like my favorite was like when I, you know, really started, like when I moved to Boston, um, like that's what I did after I graduated art school. I had the moment I'm like, you know, I had a lot of friends that were waiting around the school, hoping that, you know, this big art job was going to happen. I'm like, you got to pursue your own like opportunities. And I was like, I'm going to pursue my pastry uh, profession and like my industry profession. I knew Boston was going to be a bigger opportunity for me. And I always loved going to Boston. So it was just naturally for me to move down there. Yeah, I love Boston. I mean, I'm from Marlboro, which is, you know, like an hour. Not far. 
40 miles west of Boston, I think. So I spent a lot of time going there. Um, I'm a little older than you, and the restaurant scene was a little different back when it's I was younger. Awesome but now. I mean, it was even great then. I mean, there were so many amazing places, and you know, it it inspired me to want to to be a chef, even if I didn't get into Boston as often as I would have liked. I mean, there's so many great restaurants there. It's funny what people put in your direction if you're like, I'm looking for a job opportunity. And like, after I've ran a few programs, like once you start running your own program, like especially if you're executive chef, same thing. If someone sends you like, here's a sous chef job, you're like, no. <laughs> like, I remember there was potential of me moving to New York at one point. Everybody's like, you could be a pastry cook at 11 Madison Park. I'm like, no. <laughs> like, because I, I, I know that's not the box I need to put myself in. I, I, I know that I will not fit in that box. Like, I'm not saying it's below me. Like, the idea of working at Love Mass and Park is amazing. Um, I had friends who had connections there, but it's just not who I am. And that's one thing I've been like very avid about in my, you know, journey as a chef is um, just changing the dialogue and understanding that it's not a set path for everybody. It's not like you know, we're all working our way to fine dining. Like we're starting to realize like fine dining's dying. Like, you know, white tablecloth, all that kind of service. Like people want high quality food and that kind of stuff. But it's not about, you know, this weird hierarchy or, you know, class system anymore. It's just, you know, we need to just make good food and support our communities now. Do you like working with people and how are you working for people? Is there some of that where you don't really like to have someone to work under and you need a little more creative freedom I don't mind working with people. Um, I'm, I definitely consider myself a good boss. I, um, advocate for my staff heavily. I've, um, you know, I tend to get a lot of pastry cooks and, you know, pastry sous chefs that have been through some shit and, uh, you know, worked in toxic environments. And my thing is, I always just want to change the, you know, dialogue in that, like my last uh, pastry assistant I had, um, you know, she came from a very toxic bakery and like, you know, giving her opportunities and, you know, she was a little rattled in the beginning. I would give her a heavier workload and she got a little flustered, but you know, she grew into herself. She got more confident and like, you know, there'd be weeks where I'm like, think of the new ice cream flavor. Think of the weekend donut. Like here, have some creative energy. We're doing these like, you know, uh, cookies for Christmas. Like, do you mind hand decorating these? Like, this is yours. I want you to have a voice. You're going to get credit for it. This is not mine. I want you to grow into yourself. It's not like, it's not ego driven for me. I'm not like my name needs to be on all this. Like I expect a high quality for my staff, but I also want my staff to have their own voice because I never got that, you know, coming through certain kitchens. It's just always working under some, like I put myself in situations knowing I wouldn't fit into it. Um, in the sense of working under, like I worked not too long ago for, um, a chef that was gutting pretty hard for a James Beard award. And I knew like, it wasn't going to be a good fit. Like I was in between like, you know, working out what my next step was. And, uh, you know, that was aggressive for me, but everything was like his name. Like it has to be like his name. This is what like very specific. And I'm just like, I don't like this. I don't, I like structure, but I like creativity is why I love cooking. It's like what brings me joy. And if that's eliminated from the equation, I don't want to be there. And you've been very vocal about toxic work environments. Mm -hmm. I made no bones about it on Facebook, Instagram. A lot of the places you've worked at seemed like they weren't a good fit. And what is it about this industry especially? It seems like it's worse than a lot of other places. It seems like what's allowed in the restaurant industry would not fly in any other industry. It's been like such an interesting dynamic because, you know, one of the worst I ever went through is I went through a massive restaurant opening in 2015, like hot new restaurant, downtown Boston. It was one of the most abusive work environments I've ever been in. Um, And that's when it kind of like, I pride myself on being a very good person. And lots of people know that from me is that, you know, I'll be there for you. I'll do stuff in the 11th hour. I'm the friend you can call. Uh, I'm the hard worker. I'll like, you know, basically run myself ragged, like in order to help others. So when I see people take advantage of that with me, and at the time I kind of didn't know what was going on. I'm like, oh no, this is like what I should go through. This is like normal. Like, you know, I need to put myself through this. And like, I didn't have a day off for three months. And like the first day off I had was my dad's birthday. And then I got shit for that because like, you know, anytime I do family stuff, they're like, oh, you're close with your family. I'm like, yeah, my parents are pretty great. My brother's pretty great. It, it's just crazy to think like people like become award obsessed, which I, that's a huge thing on its own. And they, you know, abuse people. It's not good enough. They scream, they throw pans. They, you know, in that situation, I would get pulled in the office constantly uh, by the culinary director because I was hired on before he found out he was moving from Nantucket to Boston. 
And in Nantucket, the restaurant he used to own that he pulled out as proprietor of his girlfriend uh, was the pastry chef. So I was already hired. So uh, that was a very interesting situation because I know he wanted her and I almost approached the conversation and I look back and I should have, but his way of handling it instead of having a real conversation with me and understanding that we're an employment at will state, if he told me, hey, I think you're great, but I really want my girlfriend to be the pastry chef, that would have been a whole different conversation. But instead he bullied me and it was never on my work ethic or anything that matter. If he attacked my personal character, would tell me how worthless and horrible I was every day. So and downstairs in our private dining room, I would just like, most days I started having like massive panic attacks in the bathroom like every day. Hysterical crying. Um, I was just not in a good place. And also I wasn't making enough money. Like, you know, he's having these baller dinners with our chef, like, you know, uh, with champagne and all this and spending all this money and like having these expensive trips. And I'm sitting there going, I don't know if I can pay rent. You know, or if I have line cooks that are like, hey, you should grab a beer with us. I'm like, I don't have money. Like I'm, you know, paying my student loans back. I was, you know, uh, in a very toxic living situation. And, you know, I just, I had nowhere to run. So that was a, a very, you know, interesting situation to be put in. But to see it get to that point and it normalized. And it, you know, it literally is like being in an abusive relationship, which I've been a victim of, sadly. And um, a survivor of, I should say. And I left, I walked out, you know, and not in a bad way either. Like I still remember the last day I came in early. I did all my prep. It was Memorial day weekend. Is that the one in May? Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Memorial, I always, I always get Memorial day and Labor day mixed up. Me too. And, um, you know, they were gone. They were away on some Nantucket wine weekend, you know, event. Um, and before my culinary director left, he took me in the office and because I put my notice in and I gave it to our AGM and not him personally, because my anxiety was through the roof, um, and how abusive he was. And I knew he would uh, react terribly. Uh, he basically told me to my face that I should quit cooking if I can't handle it. So that was the last conversation I had. He wasn't even in the building my last day of service. And I was going to meet my boyfriend at the time's parents in New Jersey. So I had my suitcase by the back, like side door like knowing what I was doing. And, you know, I prepped everything. Like I overly prepped, like, you know, we had a baked Alaska on the menu, still there, still my recipe, uh, that, you know, in the freezer, we usually have like 12 at a go on a night. I left them with 52. So it wasn't like I was leaving them with, you know, slim pickings. Like I over prepped. So when the caller director's girlfriend took over, she had that grace period of she can figure it out. So she has stuff to run with, not have to worry about prepping regular service, and she can work on her new dishes. So I, you know, I was nice about it. I was more than nice about it. And, um, you know, I'm done cleaning my station, like was about to walk out the door. And then I get pulled upstairs like, oh, we need to talk to you. And I was like, all right, it was the uh, crappy executive sous chef and uh, the other sous chef who were part of the toxic culture. And, you know, they, they, the culinary director and the chef would gang up on me all the time and then gang up with the other boys that were all men um against me and they were just like no she's crazy like she can't get her shit together like all this like no one ever asked me do you need help what can I do to help you to be successful instead they were all about partying being cool um going for awards being baller on the internet like that you know Instagram bullshit culture and uh you know no no one ever asked me if I needed help which sucks and uh, so I got pulled upstairs and they're like, one of the line cooks called out. So we need you to work service. I was like, no, like, no. And they're like, we have, you know, normally on Sunday, we'd have like 90 covers at most, but there were over 250. And I was like, I know. And then, uh, you know, they're like, well, you need to go downstairs and count everything you have for inventory and then be up here for planning. I was like, okay. Okay. So I went downstairs, said goodbye to a lot of the um, front of house staff because they knew what I'd been through. And uh, they were dealing with their own toxicity of the bar manager. And I went up the side stairs afterwards. And uh, the executive Sue was walking down the manager office and saw me leave. And I just bolted down the alleyway. I bolted through downtown crossing, like heading to the next bus I could get on to get to New York City. And uh, my phone was going off. It was my, my chef. And I had the moment, I'm like, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? What am I going to say? And then I was like, I don't have to say anything. I fulfilled my notice. I don't have to stay for service. I'm not going to pick up. 
within seconds he unfriended me <laughs> on like Facebook and all social media, like, you know, adults. But um, it was that moment, like, it's so sobering where you're just like, I'm in control of my life. And like, as soon as I got on the bus, I just start to cry because I haven't had that mental freedom in a long time. That whole thing sounds terrifying. I mean, I've never had anything like that. I've had terrible work environments and anxiety, but I mean, that sounds like something like I'm, I'm getting stressed just like listening to you relate the story. And, and I've heard a lot of this before because we've talked a lot and it's just, it's appalling that these are the things yeah. that are happening. And it's not just people who are award chasers. I mean, there's plenty of chefs and, and cooks running small unknown places in the middle of nowhere with no social media who are also treating their employees this way. You know, it, I mean, it does kind of inflate things a little bit when the stakes are higher, but just that it's happening way too much. And it's, you're fortunate that you got out of there and were able to kind of pick up the pieces and Mm-hmm. Uh, compose yourself and, and move on and stay in the industry. Cause I think a lot of people leave the industry. I mean, we didn't have anything like that, but my wife used to be a chef and she dealt with this the first couple of years and she eventually got out of the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she was dealing with it from female chefs as well. I mean, her first chef that she worked for was a woman who treated her the same way, almost yep. the way that this guy was treating you. And it's not just a, a gender specific thing all the time. She was almost yep. acting just like these guys. And she ultimately decided like that wasn't the right environment for her. It's the one thing I learned, uh, and it is using that word, it's learned behavior. And my, my favorite thing I'm seeing now is like, we have our big chefs, like we, you know, have the big names here in Boston, you know, um, Barbara Lynch and we have Chris Coombs and, you know, people like that, you know, that, you know, run these super big restaurants. And, you know, when I was looking for certain jobs, they're like, you need to go through these kitchens. And people are like, you have to do this in order to be somebody. And now I look now and I'm like, I'm proud of the path I'm on and I, that I have been on because I have paved my own way, regardless if everybody's just like, you didn't work in fine dine, you didn't work here. I'm glad I didn't because I am not one of the broken children of these establishments because my favorite thing is when these people go and leave these kind of groups that, you know, you get shift pay. That's a big conversation in Boston, like shift pay. And I, I had a my childhood best friend came up here from Virginia. She was just looking for a change of scenery and she worked in one of these groups and she showed me her paycheck. And they, the way they get around it is like, you worked five hours, but at a hundred dollars an hour, like that's how they get around it, like on the books. But you know, they eventually got caught for that kind of stuff and they can't do shift pay anymore. They shouldn't, uh, but it probably is still done somewhere. Uh, but like shift pay, um, you know, clocking out early and then continuing to work, um, you know, one of the worst things I learned from one of the groups is like, I get like constructive criticism and whatnot, but to drag it out and to just make it like in a verbal abuse fest is not healthy for anybody. Like they have this thing called like the good, the bad, the ugly, where it's just like you say something good, something else, uh, someone else did something bad that you did personally. And the ugly, it's like, I can't remember how it goes, but it's just like, you do it at the end of a shift. This is after you've done cleaning. You have to have an end of shift debriefing. I'm like, this isn't a good note to end on. Like, I'd rather do it at the beginning of the shift and be like, you know, how did last night's service go? And like, you know, have it be that way and like step into the service with brighter eyes instead of like making it this like shaming fest. And um, so these people that worked in these environments go on to open up their own places. And we're seeing that now in Boston. And they're like, it's going to be different. It's a healthier environment. And it's not like at all. It's like they they learned like from those people. And like, you know, as you said, your wife worked for a female. I worked for my first female CDC. and she's amazing, but I can still see the remnants of, you know, the abusive kitchen she came through. And I was in a situation where I watched my chef lay his hands on our sous chef, like throw him on the ground because he wasn't putting labne yogurt correctly on the pasta dish. Um, the reality is we got busier than expected and my chef couldn't handle it. So instead of having a real conversation, um, he thought it was okay to put his hands on another person. And when I was on my way out, like, I was just like, I can't work here anymore. And I was trying to tell my CDC about this. She just kind of looked at me blankly. And I was like, he like put his hands on another human. That is not okay ever. And she's like, okay. And I'm like, hello. (laughs) Like in any, like if in any other situation, it's not okay. Like if you're in an office situation, all of a sudden your boss takes you, throws you on the ground from your seat. Like that you're that's lost you're gone that's it like that's why as you said it's like why is this environment like why is it condoned like i i 
I don't know. I believe in like humanity and that kind of thing and like treating others with respect and like, there are just some fine lines like that. It's not even a fine line. It's just like, no, <laughs> you don't do it. Abuse is not okay. Demeaning someone is not okay. Um, ripping someone apart for the personal character is not okay. Like it's not helping anybody. And uh, the biggest conversation for me, especially being a female uh, in kitchens and being in management positions, um, I am firm. I am, you know, abrupt sometimes, most of the time. Um, but you know, I've been called a bitch before and that's fine. I'm used to it, but you know, I'm very caring and compassionate to the point where, you know, I, I know how to say things and like, Hey, I was firm with you because of this, because, you know, this is getting messed up constantly. And I, I just want you to focus. Do you understand what I'm telling you? Like, do you, do you get that? Like, you know, how can I do this better? Like I, I open the conversation, to my staff, instead of making it a problem. And I worked for plenty, like with plenty of female management, especially front of house, especially my last GM, um, who thinks passive aggressiveness is okay. That, that's something I, I really hate in kitchens um, and like restaurants in general. Uh, I just don't understand why people do it because it's always going to end with a bad result. Like, I don't understand what the little sarcastic quip does. Just like, you know, as I said, some of the women I worked for, I'm like, this is non-negotiable. And like, especially if it's in like the heat of service and I get that, I've looked at, you know, management before and I'm like, you never address me like that. You never talk to me like that. I would never talk to you like that. You don't talk to me like that ever. So, and like when you draw hard boundaries, like people just freeze up and don't know what to do, which is kind of funny to watch. Yeah. You don't see a lot of people push back. Well, it's just like the, the toxic nature of the industry is where you always feel like your job's being held over your head like a carrot. And that, that's always what I've been like for me. But it's, you know, working through these toxic kitchens and knowing that I've made a good name for myself and that, as I said, I pride myself on being a good person, that I will land on my feet. And I've always, like, believed that mantra and now I'm really starting to believe it. So when you can tell these people that want to dangle that carrot and you can look them in the face and say, I don't need you, that's the most empowering moment through all of it. So how much is it because of your gender? I know you've talked about wanting to kind of change the culinary climate as it relates to how women and um, non-cis males are viewed in the culinary industry. Like, how do you plan on accomplishing those kind of changes and, and having those conversations? I mean, I guess the biggest thing right now is like, I scream loud. I am a loud advocate for this kind of stuff. And I've been aggressive, especially like, you know, with my last restaurant job. And I'm hoping that's actually my last restaurant job working under a toxic male is uh, I've been firm. I've been aggressive. I've called out bullshit and like, they just don't like it. And I'm like, I don't care if you control my paycheck. Like I'm looking at you as like, I would wish someone would tell me when I'm off my game or I'm being bad or I'm being, you know, not doing my job well. And uh, it, it's just a matter of being vocal and being clear about it. And um, you know, I try not to get like angry. I don't yell. Um, there's just no purpose in it, but I will be firm with someone and I get pretty sharp sometimes because people don't listen. And that, that's the, you know, main problem we're having in this industry is, you know, the conversation needs to be ripped wide open and thank God because of the pandemic that people are starting to see a lot more of this happening and coming forward, especially in the Boston scene. A lot of these, uh, toxic chefs are getting called out and called out hard because people are on their phones all the time now. You know, we have so many more people that are furloughed or, you know, unemployed and, you know, we're all doom scrolling and wondering when the world's going to end at this point. But, um, you know, people are more like apt to see stuff. So that's why, like, I felt like this was a more apt time to start having the conversation and to start being more vocal and to call this stuff out because I know I'm not the only one, you know, it post I put up and I'm one of these people that I feel better when I vocalize. And if I throw it into the nethers and like, you know, it, it, for me, it's a release. And uh, that's what I kind of use social media when I have my little tangents and talk openly about mental health or situations I've been in or like how we need to change the dialogue. But I get such a good response. I get messages from people, young line cooks. Um, my most recent, um, you know, uh, misfortune with employment. Uh, I got a message from a girl in Hawaii who said, like, I've watched you from afar. She's a pastry chef out there. She's like, I wish I stood up in the kitchens that I do. And I'm like, you know, just take every opportunity as another chance to, you know, stand up for yourself. Because I mean, no one's going to fight harder for you than yourself. I think a lot of, I don't know, do you want to be called like an emerging voice? But, you know, I kind of see these people now, the people I'm really interested in following on social media and interacting with, 
they seem to be a new generation of chefs. It's not necessarily like the celebrity chef. I mean, people still follow them, but there's so many great people who are saying these things and standing up and being an activist and building communities. I think it's really great that you can kind of be a voice for people around the country and the world and kind of, you know, show through your leadership and what you've gone through, you can maybe help them with some of their challenges. Oh, for sure. I've, I've talked to lots of people and I've been in abusive situations and like you're, I'm arming them. Like here you have evidence. These are the people you need to talk to. These are the labor laws you, you can, you know, refer to because they don't have a leg to stand on. Cause I hate to say it, most ownership doesn't know the ins and outs of labor laws. So I definitely tell people to know those and to look them over um, at some point. Um, I don't want everybody to think every kitchen is toxic, but it's definitely good to know those kind of things and know your rights as an employee. Uh, and also the biggest thing I advocate for is as soon as something doesn't feel right, start documenting like anything, like making notes, like keep a, you know, notes, um, document open in your iPhone or whatever, but like start documenting. That's the best thing you do. If you think your tips are getting scammed, uh, start taking your, you know, punch outs, like document, you know, your finances, like, you know, exactly in a book, like the better, the more information you have, the better of a case you have. So I definitely like empowering people that have been like, feel hopeless you know, because they had an abusive chef or, you know, a sexually abusive chef or anything like that. Like they're, they don't need to be a victim anymore. So you started your own pastry business recently or, and, and announced it. So why now did all this stuff kind of lead into it? What was the reasoning as to why now is the right time to jump and do that? It's one of those things where like, you know, as people have learned over the years, I'm a very verbose person. And uh, my best friend put it best to me the other day. She was like, you're not going to be happy until you work for yourself. And I've been in cahoots with one of my friends um, who's my business partner. And like right before all this went down, we were literally looking at real estate to open up a uh, cafe concept. And like as soon as March hit, like we knew like shit was going to hit the fan and he has other restaurants to keep alive. And I'm like, I'm going to be fine. I always tell people that like, I'm going to be fine. Like you focus on you. I'm good. So he's currently dealing with that. And uh, so my logic was if I can't have a brick and mortar right now, which sounds like a nightmare, um, that I'm going to build it from the back end. I'm going to do pop-ups. I'm going to, you know, talk to friends, see what I can use for spaces, start building my name and a following. So once I do open a brick and mortar that I'm going to have people ready, they're going to know the brand. It's not like, Oh, a new bakery. They're going to be like, Oh my God, we've been waiting for this. Like I I'd rather have that kind of hype um, come towards it and, and build that kind of community through it. So uh, it's and it, it, I would have to say it's a little lower risk too. Cause hypothetically, like let's say I do these pop-ups and like I fall flat on my face and whatever um, I could still get a job somewhere. So it's not like, you know, if my business fails, as in like my brick and mortar, I have to close it and deal with that whole, you know, shebang. So uh, it's definitely like lower risk, but it also gets me to fill out and learn things like myself. So. Well, I know you're just getting started, but do you have like the anxiety that it's not going to work out and that you'll have to go back to working for someone? Or are you too new to it to even start thinking about that yet? Because I, I still deal with that coming up next month. I will have been doing my thing full-time for four years. And I, I've said to a lot of people, man, I could not go back to working for someone. Um, and there's days where it's just like, even though I'm successful, you're like, oh, like, am I going to be able to sustain this like until I die? Uh, I actually don't have that worry. Um, I, it's, it's not like out of arrogance or anything. It's just like, I know um, I pride myself on my product and I know that I do good things. And I know that I treat my following and if you want to call them fans or foodies and guests with such love and compassion. And, you know, that's kind of like what the industry taught me um, is to care about people in general. So because I've shown that people have like a certain loyalty to me. So I feel that I was able to cultivate that kind of culture that um, I feel supported. So I'm not like really too worried about it. Well, that's awesome. And you mentioned pop-ups a little bit. Did you have one this past weekend? I did. I had to pivot because uh, my <laughs> initial venue uh, backed out at the last minute uh, through disorganization. Uh, you know how restaurants are. Um, that I had product and I was like, I don't know what to do with this. And my friend, um, Irene, who owns May May restaurant in Boston, she's amazing. Um, her and her sister and her brother has a restaurant in Boston too. 
they're just amazing family. And she just like scooped me up and she was just like, you can do like, they're doing like pickup kits for their dinner. And she's like, you can have pickup kits for your donuts as long as you have like boxes and stuff. And now we'll just set it up on toast and people can order them ahead of time. And like, you know, once they're out, they're out. And, uh, and once again, like seeing the community and seeing friends come through and be like, you know, we got you. And that it's, it's been such a loving experience for all the people when I announced my endeavor that were like, we want to host you, you know, we love your product. We want to collaborate with you. It, it, it's a good feeling. It, it makes me realize that, you know, I'm not on my own. And, you know, even if I've been through toxic work situations, even like my last one, um, you know, as crappy as those people are, I have plenty of people that are loving and caring and want a better future for the restaurant industry. Your desserts always look amazing. You, you, you have such a sense of, I guess, whimsy and like nostalgia with nods to pop culture. Like where's your culinary inspiration coming from? Um, I, you know, and when you're talking about like, you know, working through restaurants and like that history of things, um, you know, I grew up in a Southern family. My dad's from Louisiana and a lot of our families from the South. And like the other half is like my mom's from Bangor, Maine, but, uh, I grew up in a family where everybody cooked, you know, as soon as you could reach the counter, you're helping. And, uh, you know, I didn't go to culinary school. So I, I learned through my family through a lot of the women and, you know, I just always had amazing memories attached to pastry. Like during Christmas time, my grandmother, like whether she was expecting guests or not, she would have glass jars all around the living room of like homemade candy. And she taught me how to make popcorn balls. And like around certain holidays, like certain dishes were like, you know, super important in our house. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I learned how to make sugar cookies and like also learning that uh, as a baker, uh, showing up to a party with cookies, everybody's your best friend. And, uh, you know, that it, just to see people, um, their reaction, like, yes, a great steak, people will roll their eyes back in their head and be like, oh my God, this is amazing. But you get to watch people with pastry turn into children. And that's my favorite, especially if you give them nostalgic flavors that remind them of their childhood and you just see them like a grown adult just turn into a child and you can just see that in their face, like, oh my God, like, it's, it's just so nostalgic. And that's what, you know, I've always attached to pastry and that's why I love doing it. It's so much easier to bring that stuff as like a, a gift. Like it'd be really random and weird for me to go to my friend's house and bring a steak or bring a plate of shrimp and grits, right? But like you can bring brownies and cookies and oh, yeah. kind of desserts like that. And like I always show up to bars, like if I get up work early, like I'll show up to the bar with like, you know, leftover like cake scraps, you know, no, no bartender will ever complain about that. And, um, you know, cookies and stuff. I always like my, I tell people jokingly, my love language is food. Like I always need to feed people, but uh, I get that from my family as well. My mom's the one who's like shoving leftovers in your hand as you're walking out after you had two full plates of her food. She's like, you need something to take home. And I'm like, I, I have that mentality too. My grandmother used to be a home ec teacher. And the thing I remember, actually, she was my great grandmother. She would make donuts. Uh, she lived on the Cape. And like, if she heard that we were coming to the Cape, she'd make donuts. And man, if we didn't stop at her house, like every once in a while, we would pass her house and like go right to like my grandmother's house. And then she'd hear and she'd be like, I got up and I made donuts and you didn't come. You at least need to come. How dare you? <laughs> you at least need to come and take some of these home. They're not going to be as good because they're not fresh out of the fryer. But that's like one of those distinct memories I have. I didn't ever get to cook with her because she passed away at a hundred years old, but I was like six or something. We're starting to find out that stuff. Like I found out my uh, great grandmother who I didn't get to meet, uh, Mady. Um, she, like, I got a bunch of her cookbooks with like, and same thing with my grandmother, um, who passed away too. Um, I have a lot of the old cookbooks with like the little handwriting, like in the margins and everything, which I love. But, uh, we also found out my great grandmother was a lush. Apparently my aunt has a bunch of cocktail books for hosting parties. And I was like, man, this is a woman out from my own heart. Like, <laughs> Yeah, they knew how to throw down back then, right? They might not have had a lot going on, but just dinner parties and booze. So it seems like there's so many people starting these small pastry businesses. Like, is there a fear of oversaturation? How are you going to make yourself stand out? What makes your products different? Or do you not even think about that? Like, you're just going to do you and people are going to love it or they're not? I, I kind of like do my own thing. I'm always like, what I pride myself on is my flavor profiles. Like I don't give people the basic, like there's plenty of people that are going to do like, uh, since the beginning of COVID, I've been doing like cakes nonstop. Uh, that business has never stopped. I've always done cakes on the side and like, it just kind of flourished because people are like, Oh, uh, like this bakery's not taking any more orders. We need you to make a cake. So I I'm getting anywhere from like two to eight cakes a week, but you know, they're the basic places you can go, like the grocery store or whatever can give you like the vanilla, the chocolate. I have friends that have their own businesses, but I, definitely pride myself on tailoring my desserts to people, especially if I do like wedding cakes and stuff. Like I ask people questions that they're, you know, 
not used to being asked. It's not like, here are my five flavors and like my three flavors of buttercream. I'm like looking at the bride and groom going, so what dessert do you guys like to share? Like, what did you have on your first date? Like, what's something very important to you guys? Are you big beer people? Are you like these kind of questions? Like, did you pick, did you meet apple picking or whatever? Like that kind of stuff, like really make it for them because um, also like working in restaurants and like serving and stuff. And I did events serving is I lovingly call them fallen soldiers um, is the cake slices are just left on tables because people had a bite and they're like, this isn't good. And just like left it. I'm like, I never want to be that person. I never want to create a product that was there for show and people forgot about. I want people being like that wedding cake was so good. Who the hell was that? So it's, I I pride myself on my custom work, fun flavors, whimsical. And my art background comes, you know, in from my donuts. I do very artistically with different textures and, you know, um, levels of architecture, I guess you call it, where it's not like a flat donut and like a glaze. I like stuff on it. And same thing with my cakes. Like, you know, people come to me for that kind of stuff. Yeah. We have a pastry chef in Frederick here. Uh, her name's Shelly and she has a business called Rebel's Kitchen. She's actually one of my favorite people. She actually comes and acts as like my sous chef on a lot of gigs when I need help. But she is the same way. She thinks outside the box. Like I just got a bunch of pawpaws. Do you know pawpaws, the fruit? I think so. It's like a native fruit to well, a lot of the Eastern coast, but we have them here in Maryland and they're kind of like a tropical fruit um, and they're really ripe. So it's like the size of a mango, but tastes kind of like a banana and a strawberry. But like, you know, we just like brainstorm and her brain goes places. Like she's like, what if you did like a, call it like a fall tiramisu and like you pureed it up with the mascarpone, you know, like that's just not like a regular thing people do. And, and her mind is yeah. like, yeah, like just mix the pawpaw in with that and call it that. And she's made like some savory pot pie macarons like just and i'm i find that stuff really interesting because i don't want like the same chocolate cupcake like a chocolate cupcake's delicious but like the same profiles over and over again like you could do that but it's also fun to give it into different contexts like my favorite thing is if i'm like looking at how to do something like especially i'm doing like my composed desserts and like certain components and i google it and you can't find anything i'm like cool this is uncharted territory and i get super excited so then that's like a learning experience for me because it's if it hasn't been done it's because you need to stabilize something or the ratios or figure this out and like i love the whole testing aspect of things and trying to figure stuff out so and then I, I start creating signature items for myself, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I don't have a lot of those, but that's why I was so bent when I had one recipe that you couldn't find anywhere on the internet. And then some big company took that recipe from my website, put it on theirs, and then it ended up in a book. And like, mm. I subtweet these people at least once a year, including the author of the book, since she didn't do her due diligence to find out that this company didn't create it. So like, if you Google for this recipe, there's only two please, places. Please give me that because I will be like, hey girl. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, but you, you let that go. It's like five years down the road. It's not like I was going to monetize. I just wish they would have said like, hey, this is really cool. Could we post this on our website? Instead yeah. of just like changing one thing from a quarter cup to a third of a cup and then calling it their own. But, you know, that's going to happen. It's like frustrating, especially when like you look at that stuff and like, you know, it's intellectual property. Um, But I've looked at places where I've had stuff that's so unique to me that I've looked them in the face and be like, if I see this on a menu, I'm going to rain hell. Like, don't touch my stuff. (laughs) And uh, when it comes to recipes, like I pass on recipes to people, but I also approach pastry like a savory chef. I mean, I cook on the regular and I've worked through regular kitchens being a sous chef and uh, like I know how to cook. Uh, Surprisingly, uh, a lot of people (laughs) assume us pastry chefs only play with sugar. But, uh, I mean, like little things that a lot of pastry chefs don't know, like, yes, you can follow things exactly, but let's say the strawberries you got for whatever cake you're doing are not ripe. Like, how do you adjust this? Or like, they're too sweet. Like, you know, put a little vinegar in, like that kind of stuff and like salting stuff to taste. Like I, you know, if a recipe calls for like a teaspoon, like I'll taste it after and be like, is it enough? Is it too much? Like so many people just follow and go down. So it's like that kind of finesse, which a lot of chefs don't have. They're very mechanical. Like my last two sous chefs were extremely sloppy, rushed stuff, like didn't take caramel far enough, you know, overbaked stuff or like overworked stuff. And like, there just wasn't the finesse and still isn't there because they don't understand like taking your time and what you're looking for. Like I I love when I, you know, walk people through certain recipes, especially during the pandemic. It's been fun. I've um, given birth to lots of sourdough babies um, inadvertently, which is very fun. But, uh, you know, people are like, how do I know it's ready? I'm like, well, especially with sourdough, I was like, what does it smell like? What does it look like? Like that kind of stuff. And they're like, oh, I didn't know. I'm like, yeah, it's not like 
oh, in a day or two, it's going to be fun. And you start the process. It's like, it, it's everybody's house environment's different. The bacteria in the air is different. It's stuff that people don't think about. Whereas like, I'm a nerd and like, I think about everything. I'm a big note taker. So I have my notebook about, you know, like what temperature was the water for this and everything. But even with something like bread, there's so many variables, like where are you located and what's going on in the environment today? And what's the ambient temp of your kitchen at home? You know, so you also have to be able to kind of look at those things and realize that this recipe isn't necessarily a hardened recipe. Yeah. And so many people just don't understand that. As I said, like during the pandemic, everybody's like cooking and stuff and they're like, I've never cooked at home before. I'm like, oh dear God. Like, (laughs) I don't know how to fix that conversation, but, um, you know, it's definitely been amusing. And I've also learned, you know, working in kitchens to really exercise being patient with people. Cause like my automatic thing is like, you could yell at these people and be like, you know, what the fuck? Like, sorry. Um, but That's fine. You can curse on the show. Yes. Awesome. Uh, I swear like a sailor. My dad was a sailor. So, uh, but you could yell at these people and be like, why do you not know how to cook? Like, uh, and like freak out on it. But that's, you never know where anybody's coming from. And like, you know, I'm learning like with my boyfriend, he came from a family that, you know, didn't really cook a lot. Um, so I'm slowly teaching him like just little tricks I know. And like, he's cooking dinner, like in prepping stuff for, you know, when he goes to work and he just loves it. But um, just empowering people and like not talking to people like they're stupid. I mean, there's sometimes I've accidentally done it or, you know, people are just being blatantly stupid. Then yes, you'll call that out. But, you know, like more or less gauging like person to person like where they're at i'm just like oh like have you ever made this before like you know just trying to keep the conversation without getting frustrated so yeah i'll i'll put a recipe online that's seemingly easy and people always will talk about like how hard it is or something it's like a four ingredient dish or something i'm like all the steps are right here and it's it seems so easy to me but for them they're scared i uh cooked for a customer last night And she had talked about the first time I had made something for her. She tried to recreate it and it took her like four hours to make that one dish. I was like, I don't understand how that thing took you four hours. So from a business standpoint, can you do your business full time and be profitable? Is that something you've thought about? Like, are you going to be able to, again, it's early, but make cakes and desserts and and still make what you're making as a cook or a chef in a restaurant? Is that something you've kind of looked at? And can you forecast at all? I know we talked a little bit about forecasting before the show, but. It it was one of those things that I actually got to feel through the pandemic is, um, you know, with having to be for load. And then eventually, like I made my employers let me go because of the bullshit they pulled um, that. I was much happier working for myself and like calling my own shots. And, you know, I got to see like, you know, learning myself. It's like most of my business I've gotten uh, for cakes and stuff has been word of mouth only. Like I've, and because I've been so busy with that, that I haven't had time to like start a website, which I'm going to do. I promise when I have time. Uh, But I, I haven't even done like that kind of promotion which is crazy to think. So if I actually took that step and did it, where is it going to be? And like, I'm making more than I was working full-time, working 60 hours a week at this job that I hated, you know, I'm more happy like being home and like it's sustainable and it just has done so much for my mental health. That's amazing. I just have seen all these people who are kind of doing it on the side and they need to work part-time at a restaurant or they have a full-time job, like they're an accountant and they do it on the side. But if they had to quit that accounting job, there's no way they could like pay their mortgage and support their family with what they're making. And I think that's the difference is you see like the people who are doing it professionally, like I'm a personal chef full time. Like I charge what I charge because I have to, like that's what I know I'm worth and what I can get and what I need. But you get undercut a little bit. Like I'm sure there's Sally in Boston who's making cupcakes at her house and they're going to be less expensive than yours, but she doesn't have the experience or the skill set or whatever. But some people are very price sensitive, Mm -hmm. but those people might not be your customers. And that's another thing. Like, I mean, I have no problem being, I mean, I guess an asshole, but uh, you know, I get Karen from Quincy who's like, well, I don't know, like this girl charges this much, but I'm, I'm like, cool, I don't need your business. Like you're going to be a trouble like person anyways. Like I don't need you. And I've like discontinued conversations. Whereas like, especially with the world of Pinterest, um, it's a nightmare for pastry chefs where you get people like, look at my pin board and this is what I want the cake to look like. And sometimes it's helpful. Like uh, sometimes I get clients that like, basically like, like I'm getting married in like a month. And I'm like, cool, what are you looking for? And they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, this doesn't help me at all. But then you get the crazy ones who are like, I need to look exactly like this, but be like 
I had a woman recently I had to basically tell to, you know, shove it was she wanted 250 cake pops. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'll charge like, you know, $3 a piece for these. And she's like, oh no, I, I need to do this all for $200. I was like, so each cake pop is going to be less than a dollar. I'm like, no. And she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, no, sorry. Uh, you can go to any bakery. You can go to any other person. Like, I mean, if you want a science project, like, you can teach yourself to do this, but I'm not working for that level. And she's like, well, uh, what am I going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. And I don't care, honestly. Like, it's not my problem. Yeah. I've talked about this with some other personal chef friends. The thing we're seeing on our end is all these people having micro weddings, which I love. I'm super appreciative. I, I love it. <laughs> but these are people who traditionally would get a caterer. Like I'm not a caterer. Like I don't, I hate uh, tablescapes. Like I'm not the guy to make a swan napkin and I don't have all these linens and have all these things. And you talked about, you know, like Pinterest boards. I'm getting customers saying like, here's my Pinterest board, my vision board of like my colors and my whatever. And what can you work? It's like, listen, I want you to tell me what you like for food and don't like, and I'm going to build something cool but I'm not the guy, like people are like, I want to see pictures of your China. Can you show me? And they're like, Ugh. yeah, but that's something new that I'm dealing with now that I'm not used to. And like, how much do I want to go down that road? It's paying the bills and it's really good. But like having that conversation that you're going to have to do that part on your own. Like I can set your table. If you have some stuff, here's what I have for China, but I'm not wanting to go down the road of like rentals. I don't have like front of the house people who are going to wear tuxes and bow ties. Like that's not what I do. That's like a caterer, but yeah. caterers aren't really doing a lot of those like 10 person wedding receptions. So now I find no. myself in this spot where like, I'm trying to walk that line where now I'm dealing with like mother of the bride and addressing kind of that front of the house thing. That is not mm. really what I want to do. Like I want to throw a fun dinner party and make some really awesome food and have a good time and like not have it be as formal but the idea now of like the wedding being still a formal thing even though it's in your house mm -hmm. it's interesting it's definitely interesting i'm like i've been fortunate enough where a lot of the people that are referred to me or that have been repeat customers are people that worked in the industry or they're friends of people that worked in the industry so they they have like that mentality and they know when they're coming to me like what they're gonna get and nine times out of ten people are like give me loose parameters and they're like we just want you to be creative we want to see what you come up with and like people are just thrilled with the outcome i mean i also have like as i said the the karen from quincy i had one i did a um kid's birthday cake recently. And like, it's just so funny to see people like, you know, what backgrounds they come from. And as I said, like trying not to get frustrated, but you know, it's like, she wanted like the immediate, like I'm, I'm doing cakes and then like, I'm, I have a life as a person. And, um, you know, she wants like this immediate email response and like, you know, she will ask questions that I already answered. And like, when you have to be like, Oh, see above, like, that's always fun. And then, you know, just them not understanding certain things, like, when I've already given them the information, but they're so used to working like an office job or a desk job. And they're like, you know, trying to be formal in their emails. And I'm like, I answered everything above. Like, we're good. Stop emailing me. Get out of my hair. We're expecting you have an admin person. Cause again, like I do everything from my business and exactly what you're saying. It's like, I'm prepping today for an event tomorrow and I'm not tied to my phone and people will like email. And if they don't hear from me in like an hour, then they like will text me. And it is about their event in December, you know, because they have a question of something and they want like that immediate kind of response yeah. and, you know, you can spell it out. And if they don't hear from you in a week after you've answered, like I'll say, okay, I think we're all set. We've got the menu. Here's this. I'll touch base a couple of days before. And in a week, yeah. if you haven't communicated for no reason, they'll say like, are we still good for the event? It's like, yep, we're good. Oh, yeah, I love like, that. Yeah. I've got your date on the calendar and I've got everything I need. I'll talk to you like two days before. Or like, I mean, you know, I've been open about like mental health and stuff and I, I suffer from anxiety and depression and like, you know, through all this and like not knowing the certainty of my job, like for me, it's like, I wasn't going to go back to my last job. Like I couldn't stand my employer anymore, but, um, you know, you want the opportunity to, you want to be offered it because you want things on your own terms. Uh, but, you know, going through that at the same time, while well, you know, wondering like what my personal next step was going to be that, you know, I'll look at my phone, but then I have people, you know, text me, ask me about the, you know, this kind of stuff. And for me, that is such emotional and mental labor sometimes to talk to people, even my friends. And they, they understand that. Like, I'll get back to them after like a couple of days later. I'm like, sorry, I was like, you know, in the trenches of my own feelings and, you know, not feeling great. And I just wasn't in the right headspace to chat with you. Like I knew in what window of time I needed to get back to you and like what my leeway was, but like, if it didn't require immediate response, I was going to get to it later. 
And uh, that, that's one thing I kind of want to normalize is people understanding that like, it's not like this, like if, if we can take one big thing from the pandemic is we need to slow down like everybody. And like, you know, I've taken so much time to slow down. Uh, it's been nice as much as I'm a stubborn workaholic, it's been nice to get to stuff I've been putting off and like taking care of myself. And, you know, if I do need a day of rest and like, I just get up and, you know, feed my cats and water my plants. And then I'm on the couch and I fall asleep for a couple hours because like I let my body kind of dictate what I need, but then I'll have a day like the following day where I'm super productive, like from, you know, as soon as the sun comes up till, you know, two o'clock in the morning, like, so it's been a fun sliding scale. Yeah. I've had a couple of days where I've slept in just because like you just need it. You have to listen to your body. And I think we blow that off too often. And it's just like, if you're in bed and your alarm goes off, but you don't actually have to be somewhere. Like if you're feeling tired, maybe you should sleep a little more. Yeah. It's like getting over that. Like it, it goes hand in hand with like the whole toxic culture thing is, um, you know, the grind culture needs to die. Like I I get working hard and like, I want people to still be hard workers, but that doesn't mean sacrificing your own health or your own mental health, your own physical health. Like it doesn't need to be that anymore. If you don't answer your phone on your day off, like it's okay. It's your day off. If you don't come in for that sixth shift because your chef is an idiot and didn't schedule somebody like it's, that's not on you. Like we, we need to start normalizing that conversation too. And we talked a lot about toxic environments and not good people. Who are some of the underrated badasses in the food and beverage scene that you want to call out? Like who are some people that aren't getting the attention who you think are awesome? I I mean, definitely the people that are kind of like in the shadows, but are very aware of things. I was fortunate enough um, when I won 30 under 30, I was working under Josh Lewin, who uh, owns a couple businesses here. He owns um, Juliet and uh, Peregrine in Boston. And he's just like a brother to me. And, you know, definitely working with him, he gave me the brotherly love I needed. He was never horrible to me, but he, you know, pushed me for sure. And I learned a lot about myself and I'm better because of that. And, uh, you know, he's great to his staff. He's great to people like, you know, I, he doesn't have a bad bone in his body and it's nice to see people doing it the right way. Um, I, I definitely scream his praises for sure down here, you know, definitely my friends at Meme, what they're doing is the, they're fighting the good fight. Um, I have so much faith in, you know, Irene, just what she's doing is like having these bigger conversations, um, especially with, you know, I don't know if you want to call it people being more woke, but people are just being more educated and smarter about things and opening up dialogues and not being afraid of it. Uh, my last place of business, like, you know, when the Black Lives Matter, you know, movement came to a head, uh, they were so afraid to say anything because on the North Shore where I was, um, it's an extremely like closed-minded racist area, like hands down racist. Like if you look at some of the forums and stuff, like the stuff people say, it's like horrific to see people think that way. So my last place business thought they couldn't say anything because they would offend clientele. I'm like, I'd rather offend clientele. I'm sorry. Like, you know, if my brothers and sisters and, you know, fellow coworkers and people in the community, like don't feel safe, um, you know, having like all these biased and, you know, prejudice against them, like that's not okay. And I will fight for them and we'll be vocal about that because those conversations need to happen. And Irene and her sister like talk about these things so much and it's awesome. You know, even we saw it the other day with Columbus Day, like talking about indigenous people and like the awareness with that kind of stuff. And it's just nice to see these conversations get blown up and like having them, even if people are going to come at you and be like, well, I'm not going to, you know, patron you anymore because, you know, Black Lives Matter is a terrorist movement. Um, That's fine. I'd rather lose those people. Like they're not keeping my lights on the actual good people that support me do. I don't know either of them, but I follow them. And um, Josh seems really cool. I remember I backed one of his places on Kickstarter at this point, probably like seven years ago. And he sent like the really coolest gift set with like tea and spices and some really cool stuff. And I would love to check them out. I don't get up to Boston as much as I used to. Um, And Maymay seems like they're always doing cool stuff. So they're definitely on the list for next time I get up there, whenever that is. And also like where I am in Quincy, it's nice to see like um, one of my favorite uh, groups I talked about is a group I came through was Townsend. Um, they it, it's opened by Devin Adams and Palmer Matthews, uh, two alumni of Barbara Lynch, and used to work at Drink, um, the you know famous cocktail bar here. And they went on to open a place in Quincy. And Quincy um, and on the South Shore, it's definitely like working class. Um, it used to be pretty aggressive down here, like as far as like crime and stuff. But now it's like 
blue collar folk, like just normal people. And to see them see this market have so much potential, like back in the day, what Cambridge and Somerville were like, you know, these areas where, you know, some people live, but now it's like hotspots, like, you know, restaurant, you know, neighborhoods and like, you know, even Roslindale, JP, like places like that in Boston, like, you know, on the outskirts, like the greater Boston area, quote unquote, um, East Boston, like around the airport is starting to get awesome restaurants, which is great on top of like, there are already awesome ones there that people didn't know about, but just seeing people like them look into these neighborhoods and see the potential. And, um, you know, they're like definitely an exception to the rule where they work for people like Barbara Lynch in these toxic work environments. And they have flipped the script on it where they want to have healthy work environments and like treat their staff well. And like, you know, they were there for me when I left my super toxic job that I, you know, told you in great detail about. And Devin just took me in. It was just like, you know, we got you like, he helped me with financial stuff. Like it, it was just nice to see that, you know, even in my like, you know, darkest hour, like I had people there for me and that they want to do good things for the community as well as take care of their staff. Cause we've all been through those kitchens and those bar programs. And it's just nice to see people wanting to do good. And hopefully we'll see more of that. I'm optimistic. Things are changing a little bit. Probably not as fast as they could or should, but uh, getting there. They're a little bit, and there's a lot of performative behavior right now. Like the biggest one we saw, and I have no problem calling shit out, uh, Tate Bakery here. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the owner. Um, She, like, just seeing people make excuses because, like, I, I get that, um, you know, she has a Riz- Israeli, um, she, you know, saw like an untapped market and like did her thing, opened her thing. That's fine. I, I love that. I love that she made a name for herself. But the fact that, you know, once again, when the Black Lives Matter came to a head that, she, you know, employees were coming forward about how prejudiced she was and like, you know, business practices and how terrible it was working for her. And, you know, in the worst place you can get in a fight on is Twitter. Um, seeing people like being like, well, she did this. So therefore it's like, like trying to justify the abuse. And I'm just like, no, like, I, I don't care if she won the Nobel peace prize. Like she's the next mother Teresa. If she's treating her employees like shit. No, like you don't get a pass. Yeah. Like no, but nobody's getting, nobody should get a pass anymore like that. Like in the sense that she doesn't see the wrong, there was no formal apology made to the staff. There was no, you know, discussion of resolution. It was just, she stepped back. Um, and she still has, she's still going to profit off. They just opened one in DC. Uh, she's still going to profit off it. She's going to be fine, but her employees are not getting the justice they deserve. And I, I hate seeing that. And that's why I'm encouraging people like to keep the conversation going, to keep talking about this, to not support them, to call out bullshit. Like it just needs to keep being a constant thing. Cause these people are going to do what they have to do to sweep it under the rug. And to treat other humans like that, as I said, is just not okay. Yeah, and I, I do think people don't know, especially the general public, like I think it's hard enough as a industry professional to stay on top of that. But like, you know, like my in-laws have no idea, you know, who the terrible restaurateur is in town. They're just going to go to a place. And it's like, how do you get the word out to like stop spending money at places like that? You know, it's I mean, they're always going to have people, but to know that my money is not going to go there and my friend's money is not going to go there. And like, I, that makes me feel good. Um, but one thing I also do, and like, you know, as I said, I've always um, kind of had a more polarizing approach to things just because we haven't seen change at all that you need to be more aggressive about it. We're coming up to the end of the hour. Is there anything that you feel like we haven't gotten into that you even want to touch on or... What, what should people know? What are some parting words, I guess? Um, I don't know. I just, I basically right now, um, just the importance of how the industry needs to evolve and it's already starting. Like it's just a small start right now, but to just keep that conversation going, like I'm not going to stop, you know, advocating for staff, advocating for, you know, healthier work environments, um, better working environments, uh, you know, calling out behavior when it's bad. Um, you know, reminding people that it's not them, like nine times out of 10, it's not them. Um, It's a chef or, you know, whoever the abuser is, um, it's their baggage that they need to unpack. Um, But that's also another thing is like normalizing, going to therapy, you know, normalize talking to other people, um, saying that you're not okay. It's okay to say you're not okay. Or if you're in a bad place, you know, it doesn't need to be this like machismo, like, oh, I'm such a badass. And like, God forbid, if I said I'm having a bad day, like, 
you know, my staff's got to think less of me. I'm like, I don't care. I wear my heart on my sleeve and I let my staff know like, Hey, I had a rough morning or I got a phone call from a relative or whatever. I'm like, I might not be in the right mind space. So if I seem a little off, that's why, like I always over communicate on everything, whether it's on social media or to my staff or to friends. Like I feel over communication is the best because there's so many times where there was a lack of communication. No, I can totally see that. And seeing how you interact on Facebook and social media with people and being quite open with how you are. I mean, I would expect nothing less than that in person from you. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been great. Appreciate it. Thank you for letting me rant. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's awesome. And I love having these conversations. To all our listeners, this has been the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. As always, you can find us at chefswithoutrestaurants.com.org and on all social media platforms. Thanks so much and have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.